this Psalm of David, Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse, their firmament, is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utter utterances to the end of the world. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless. And I shall be acquitted of great transgression. And then verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. A Psalm of David, this is the word of the Lord. Let's unite our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself even your perfections, even in creation. And since creation does not save, God, we're so thankful this morning that you've revealed yourself in your word through which we are cleansed through the message of the coming Redeemer, the rock of our salvation. God, may we this morning worship you through the preaching of your word in spirit and in truth. May you be glorified. May the message be in accordance to your word. May it be faithful to your word that we as a body would be edified, that we would be lifted up and united in the faith, conformed to the image of your son. while our services are always gospel-centered because we, as saints, need the gospel. God, we pray for any here this morning that do not know you, God, that by the power of your Spirit that you would regenerate and change, transform that life for your glory and for their good. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we saw in verses 1 through 6 the revelation of God in his world. And we'll just review this as quickly as possible. In verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands, his handiwork. Verse 2, basically just summarizing the following verses. Day after day, the heavens speak to us. Night after night, they reveal the knowledge of God. In verses 3 and 4a, creation speaks to all, even to the ends of the earth. And there is nothing hidden from the voice of God that comes through creation. Verse 4b through 6, we see in the firmament, God has placed a tent for the sun. The sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, leaving his father's house and going after his bride. He is young and he is strong and he runs his course. And he goes after his betrothed in his course, and nothing will stop him. He is faithful. The sun runs its course every day, just like the bridegroom does on that fateful day. And just as there is none hidden from the heat of the sun, there are none hidden from the voice of creation, the voice of God that speaks through creation. It is teaching us, and it's teaching us of the glory of God, and we see it in his handiwork. You see, the heavens are telling, they're declaring the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring of the works of his hands. Yet while the heavens are proclaiming the glory of God, the knowledge of God revealed through creation cannot save. It specifically deems us without excuse. And we saw that verse last week from Romans 1.20 where the Apostle Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what is made so that they are without excuse. So if you stand before God lost one day, you will have no excuse. And really what this verse is telling us is even those who never hear the gospel, they never hear the word of God, are deemed without excuse through creation. Why? Because the heavens are telling, they're proclaiming the glory of God. And the expanse is declaring the works of God's hands. In verses 1 through 6, we see the revelation of God in his world, which is only sufficient, of course, to declare his glory, but it only condemns us. Yet in verses 7 through 14, we see the revelation of God in his word, which is sufficient to save, even to sanctify us. David begins this section, as we began to see last week, with six statements concerning the scriptures in verses 7 through 9. These are unified, yet specific statements concerning the word of God. Each statement gives us a title for the word, law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and judgment. Each statement, each statement, excuse me, reminds us that the scriptures are of the Lord. See, God is the source. All scripture is given. Theonuptos. It is given by inspiration of God. It is God breathed. God is the source of scripture. Each statement gives us a characteristic of scripture. Perfect. 
sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And each statement gives us a benefit, or we could call it a blessing of Scripture. It restores the soul. It makes wise the simple. Rejoices the heart. Enlightens the eyes. Endures forever. And it is righteous altogether. These six statements confirm the inspiration, the inerrancy, and the sufficiency of God's Word. They reveal all that we need to know about God. They teach us all that we need for life and godliness. Last week, we considered the first four. And again, we will review these briefly, I hope. They're so profound. They're so amazing. The first is in verse 7a. The law, it's the word Torah. The Torah of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. We saw that God's instructions, Torah is God's instruction. His word is perfect. It means complete, all-sided, comprehensive. It is perfect, restoring the soul. It transforms the soul, the inner man, the real man. God's word is so comprehensive that it totally transforms the sinful man. It targets the inner person, the real man, and transforms him, making him a new creation. The writer of Hebrews wrote, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intents of his heart. Paul declared, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Peter wrote, Having been born again, or again born Again, begotten is a perfect participle, meaning it refers to something that happened in the past in which the benefits, the effects of it continue on to this day and will continue a perfect participle. We have been born and it's, it's permanent. It is lasting, but it's not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the living and abiding word of God. The second thing that we saw in verse 7b, the testimony or the witness of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You see, the scripture are the testimony of the Lord. The scripture are God's testimony, his witness that is sure, it's faithful. The scripture are God's testimony of who he is, his person. And they are a more sure word of prophecy as we saw last week. And the last thing he says here is they make wise the simple. They give wisdom to those who have wide open minds. That's not a good thing. We don't want to have wide open minds to take in anything. But the scriptures, God's testimony, his witness gives wisdom to those with wide open minds. Wisdom to those with no discernment, in other words, that the foolish man might have the wisdom of God. And then the third one that we saw last week in verse 8a, the precepts, it's the word statutes or doctrines of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, not right as opposed to wrong, rather they put us on the right path. It's doctrine that reveals or lays out the right path. The doctrine is the right path. 
We saw from Psalm 119, 105, not only are God's precepts the right path, they are the lighted lamp for that path. Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, so that those who are transformed by the word of God no longer walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Every other path produces grief and sorrow and frustration. Every other path is a path of lies and deception, a path that leads to death. But the path of God's word is light. It's a path of truth and purity. Remember what Jesus said, blessed, happy are those who hear the word of God and obey it. When a sinful man is transformed in place on that right path, it rejoices the heart. He is full of joy. It's through God's word on that right path that we have real joy. The fourth one that we considered last week is in verse 8b. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The word commandment is the word mandate. In this case, it's a direction, or we could say directive, that comes from divine authority. The psalmist says the commandment of the Lord is pure. The word pure here from the Hebrew means clear, transparent, easily understood. Notice also it enlightens the eyes so that we can see the truth, so that we can see things as they really are. It gives us the light of God. It gives us clear direction for life. We're no longer stumbling around in darkness. If we have the commandment of the Lord that is pure, we see things as they are in truth, as God sees them. So today we will continue the fifth thing, the fifth of sixth, verse 9, 8, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Fear meaning reverence or awesome or even worship. It's real worship. Fear is actually a metonym for worship. We worship with reverence, in other words. The Bible is a manual on worship. It teaches us how to worship. It teaches us that God is holy and we are not. It teaches us that we must worship in the manner that he commanded us. We see that all over the Old Testament in particular. It teaches that he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. The Bible is a worship manual, and it is clean, it is pure, it is free from error. Inerrant, in other words, free from defilement, free from any contamination. The text, this text, is the single most important scripture concerning inerrancy of scripture. There are others, but this is like the shining star when it comes to inerrancy of Scripture. David makes this point also, though, in Psalm chapter 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure. Again, this Hebrew word means clean words, words without error. The words of the Lord are pure. And then notice the psalmist's description of his purity. As silver trod in a furnace on the earth, refined or literally purified seven times. So the Bible is a worship manual. God's word are without error. They are purified and they, he says, will endure forever. You see, many people today think the Bible is out of date. They think that our culture has outgrown the scriptures 
They think that there are certain parts that we must disregard because they might be offensive. I was just talking to Nick about a similar concept that's promoted. It's so common today to water down the gospel, to not deal with man's real sin problem and just tell everybody God loves you. But that's not the gospel. The good news is no good news if we're not saved from the penalty of sin, if we're not saved from sin itself. You see, we're infected with a sin nature. It was imputed to us in Adam. We're all born in sin. As David said, in sin, my mother conceived me. Well, back to the text. The psalmist says, Your word, O Lord, is settled in heaven. No one will destroy it. It doesn't matter about what people do. It doesn't matter what apostate churches do. It will not be destroyed. It will fulfill the purpose that God intended it to fulfill. You can be sure of that. It will happen in your life, whether it means that it further condemns you or whether it brings you to salvation in Jesus Christ. French philosopher Voltaire in 1776 said this, 100 years from my day and there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Was that fulfilled? This man's word was not fulfilled. God's words always fulfilled. You see, 50 years after his death in 1778, the very house in which he once lived and wrote was used by the Evangelical Society of Geneva as a storehouse for Bibles and gospel tracts, and the printing presses he used to print his irreverent works were replaced to print Bibles. Folks, the fear of the Lord It's clean, it's pure, enduring forever. And folks, it will accomplish the purpose to which God intends it to accomplish. Then David gives us the last of six statements concerning his word. Verse 9b, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Judgments are verdicts of the divine judge, the righteous judge of all the earth. The judge of all men, all the judgments of the Lord are true. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, or he actually uses several statements to refer to this truth, the word of God being truth. He calls it the word of truth, as does Paul and Timothy. He calls it the law of truth. The psalmist psalmist also wrote, all your commandments are truth. John Murray wrote this. The mind of man is never a religious vacuum. If there is an absence of truth, there's always the presence of faults. You see, that's why we need the Word of God. It is transforming, as we've already seen. It replaces the lies in our minds. We're to be, and we see it in Romans chapter 12, don't we? That we are to continually be conformed to the image. It's through the Word of God that the, the false things, the things that are lies, deceptive things are replaced with the truth. It's by taking heed to the Word. If we're going to know the truth, we must take heed to the Scriptures. They reveal things as they really are. And if there was ever a time in which 
professing Christians need the truth. It's today. But I want you to notice there's another aspect of the Hebrew word true in Psalm 119. As you study this Hebrew word, it speaks of that which is, well, really speaks of firmness. It speaks of faithfulness and speaks of stability. So the judgments of the Lord are not only true, not only are they reality, they are firm, they're stable. We could say that they're immovable because they are the word of God. They are the judgments of God. They are faithful to the character of God. David says they are righteous altogether. These judgments are righteous altogether. They are just judgments, we could say. God sits on the throne of heaven and all of his judgments are righteous. They're just they're righteous judgments individually, and they're righteous altogether. God in his righteous judgment has deemed us without excuse. He's deemed us as condemned, born into this world lost. We're born into this world alienated from the citizenship of Israel, the citizenship of his kingdom, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Yet it's through the precious word of God that we are made right. We're brought into a relationship with him, brought into his kingdom, into his eternal processes. I said that wrong. Promises. Into his eternal promises. You see, the judgments of the Lord are true. They're firm and they're righteous altogether. Sorry about that. So let's just review the six statements. The divine and just... Not reading them word for word, but what the words actually mean, as we've seen over the last week and so far this this morning as well. The divine instruction of the Lord is comprehensive, transforming the real inner man. The testimony of the Lord is sure, giving wisdom to the wide open mind, to the foolish. The statues or the degrees of the Lord are the right path, causing the heart to rejoice. The mandates of the Lord are transparent, bringing light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord, the worship manual of the Lord is without error, enduring forever. The divine judgments of the Lord are true. They're firm and they are comprehensively righteous. You see, this book right here, the scripture, is the inspired, inerrant, sufficient word of God. You see, we don't need today, and never have we needed, to add psychology or techniques or programs or entertainment or create an illusion of spiritual phenomenon. There is power in the Word of God. It totally transforms the sinner. It's the message that comes through the Word. It's the gospel. We have the completed Word of God, and it's sufficient to accomplish exactly what God intends it to do. It reveals who God is. It reveals who we are apart from Christ. And it redeems a people. It is redeeming a people for God, for God's Son, the very bride of Christ. Yes, the Word of God is inspired. It's God-breathed. It's inerrant. It's sufficient. And because of this, it is our greatest treasure. It is a great treasure, folks. Verse 10a, he's speaking of the words. David writing here, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. In the ancient world, gold was the most valuable commodity. 
the most precious material resource, the most valuable instrument of transaction. The psalmist speaks of its value in a number of places, especially in Psalm 119, verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Psalm 119, 127, therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. See, the word of God is valuable, more valuable than anything this world has to offer, because these are the words of life. These are the words of salvation. Through the cleansing of the word, we enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of God brings us into a new kingdom, not the kingdom of darkness in which we're born into, but the kingdom of God's dear son, an everlasting kingdom, and kingdom in which all the promises of God are yes. All the promises of God are fulfilled in this kingdom. Jesus spoke of this kingdom in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hit again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It is a kingdom worth more than everything in this world. It's a kingdom worth selling, turning from everything of this world to purchase, so to speak, a kingdom revealed through the word of God, the word that is a great treasure that reveals a great treasure in the kingdom. The word of God also brings great pleasure. If you read the whole of verse 10, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, much fine gold. And then watch this, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Honey was the sweetest food in the ancient world. He says in 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. There's no pleasure in this world, folks. You can believe the lie of the devil, but there is no pleasure in this world that compares with the sweetness of the word of God, the pleasure of the word of God. The word of God gives pleasure beyond anything this world can give. The pleasures of this world are only an illusion but they're the way of death. Notice obedience to the word of God brings great reward. Verse 11, moreover by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. You see, God's word warns us of disobedience, doesn't it? And rewards us for obedience. Of course there's blessings in this life to those who obey his word. But it is the eternal reward that's in view here. Think of this. Hebrews 11, the descendants of Abraham who died in faith, they died believing God's promises, yet not receiving them in this life. You see, they believed that they were strangers and aliens here on this earth. They desired a better country, a heavenly one whose builder and maker is God. They patiently waited for a kingdom that's not of this world. That's faith. That's faith lived out. That's trusting God with all your heart. 
You see, obedience to the Word of God brings great reward. Might not be so much in this life, but God's promises are yes. The Scriptures reveal the ultimate obedience in John chapter 6, verse 29. And I think this relates here. Jesus said, this is the work of God. God speaking here through the person of Jesus Christ. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the ultimate obedience to the word, to believe in God's son. As we've seen over many weeks, Thursday nights and on Sundays, just how much the word of God from the very first verse, especially chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, is screaming out to us of the Messiah to come. It's a promise of one that would conquer, that would crush the head of Satan. A deliverer, a Messiah to come. And we see it all through the Old Testament. See, the Bible, God's word points us to Christ. Now notice David's profound question in verse 12a. Who can discern his errors? David Even David, King David, could not discern his errors. But the word of God reveals the hidden, hidden things. It reveals that we have a sin problem, that we must be purged from our guilt. Creation reveals the glory of God, but the word of God reveals God, and it reveals our sinful hearts. Now, finally, I would ask you to notice David's prayer Verse 12b through 14, equip me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see, the law of God, the word of God, but in particular, the law of God reveals our sin problem. It warns us of the consequences of sin. If you disobey, you will be cursed. If you disobey, there's consequences. It shows us even the consequences of our sin nature. God had promised the children of Israel, if you obey my word, I will listen to you. But if you disobey my word, I will curse you. Yet because of the hardness of their hearts, they were not able to obey God's word. And God knew it. You see, the law, God's commandments reveals that we cannot keep them. It teaches us that we're exceedingly sinful. It teaches that we have no hope in pleasing God through our own efforts or by keeping the law. Yet it points us to the rock and to our Redeemer. Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. It's only in the rock through which the river of living water flows, through which our thirst is is, is quenched, is satisfied. Wrong word. It's only... in our Redeemer, that we are purchased out of sin's domain. That's our sin no longer rules over us. It's through the Word of God who reveals or which reveals the rock, 
which reveals the Redeemer that we're blameless before God. We are declared through faith blameless in his sight. It's only through the word of God that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will ever be acceptable in his sight because the word points us to the rock of our salvation. It points us to our Redeemer. You see, there's no hope without redemption. Christ, the Messiah, is our rock. He is our Redeemer. We could never know Christ and his saving work through creation. As glorious as creation is, as much as we can see God's handiwork through it, it never reveals Christ. But God has revealed the saving Messiah, Jesus Christ, the saving Messiah through his word. Look to him. He's our only hope. Trust in him. Call upon him to save you from sin that dwells in you. For he was crucified because of our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. You see, he is the satisfying sacrifice for sin. Remember, it was only through the shedding of blood. That's God's way. Cain was rejected because he rejected God's way. God rejected him and his sacrifice. God's way is through the shedding of blood. That's God's way. Jesus Christ shed his blood. He is our propitiation. In other words, he appeased God's anger against us. Jesus Christ took the punishment for our sins for those who believe so that all who believe are no longer at enmity with God. We're no longer at war with God, but are at peace with him. Through Christ, we are declared righteous in his sight. That's basically the gospel that Jesus Christ died. He was buried. He rose again for our justification. He was raised to ascend back to the Father. And there he intercedes for us. This is truth to celebrate. Should not we celebrate what Christ has done for us? May we celebrate on this glorious morning remembering the Lord's death. May we do it faithfully till he comes. And I'm so thankful this morning that God spoke through creation. I love to look at the stars. I love to see, not really, stare at the sun. That's not a good idea. But I love, I love God's creation, all of it, from the heavens to the microbiological elements and all those machines that's functioning in our bodies that are part of us. It's amazing. You guys know how much I love creation. Yet all that revelation revealing the handiwork of God only deems us without excuse. It does not give you a new heart, does it? Aren't you glad this morning there's something a lot better than creation that reveals? Thank God for creation. And the revelation of God through it. But I'm so thankful this morning for the word of God in which God has revealed himself. He's revealed his attributes, his perfections. He's revealed his holiness. He's revealed our issue, our problem, and why we're so separated from him. And he's revealed salvation in his son. I'm glad that God's spoken in his word. He's given us a word that's sure and steadfast without error sufficient for everything that we need, sufficient 
to cleanse us from sin. Folks, these are the words of life. Through his word, he's revealed his son. He has spoken through his son. And folks, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. The dunamis, the power of God, the dynamite, so to speak, of God unto salvation to all who believe. The gospel is that Jesus left the glories of heaven, came to a sinful, sin-cursed world, and dwelt among men. He came in the person of God's Son. He is eternally God's Son. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He went to the cross. He bore the sins of many, the sins of all who would ever believe. He took our place. He satisfied the wrath of God. He was buried. He rose again, victorious over sin, death, and the grave. And by the power of God, he has ascended back to the Father where he intercedes for us. He is the mediator of a new covenant. We cannot keep God's law and be right before God because of the hearts that we're born with. But he is the mediator of a new covenant. A covenant in which God promised new hearts. Hearts that worship. Hearts that now desire to obey him. Hearts that love God and his people. Hearts that delight in remembering the Lord's death. And that's what we want to do right now. We remember the Lord's death through the two elements, the unleavened bread and the wine. Unleavened bread represents Christ's body that was broken, through which we enter into God's presence without guilt as his own children. He imputes to us the righteousness of Christ, dresses us in the very righteousness of Christ in which we stand before him without guilt. We stand before him with the holiness of God upon us. The wine represents the blood of Christ that washes away all sin. The bitterness of the wine represents God's justice and wrath, but its sweetness represents abundant blessing. We see those things in the scripture. So the wine pictures for me and for you that the Lord Jesus Christ took God's wrath that we might have abundant blessing. Through partaking, we receive grace, not salvation grace, no. But we believe it's sanctification grace. As we remember, we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are commanded, and we want to be faithful, don't we? We're commanded to examine ourselves before we partake, that we might not partake in an unworthy manner. So important. Of course, we want to deal with any sin. But those in Corinth had become complacent. They were just going through the motions, one going before another, disregarding one another. They were just doing their thing. This is a time of worship. So through prayer, yes, deal with any sin issues that you might be struggling with. 
repent, confess, and accept God's forgiveness. But maybe even more importantly, deal with your purpose and your heart in your worship in this communion service. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.